0: You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met before, my name's Sam, and uh, I get to serve as one of the leaders here at the church. And so good to be with you this morning and to gather and to worship and to learn from the scriptures together. Uh, One of the things that I am most excited about... As our world starts to open up more and more post-pandemic is this ability to travel. Traveling is one of my absolute favorite pastimes and before I came to serve here at the church, uh, I spent just about 10 years working at a Bible college in Surrey and a huge part of my job at that time was to travel and I got to go to all sorts of super cool places and all across North America I got to travel to places like Dallas and Los Angeles and Seattle and Portland And one year, I actually even got to go to Honolulu as part of a work trip, which just doesn't feel fair. But uh, also traveling across Canada, everywhere from Vancouver here to Montreal to Halifax and kind of everything in between, I love visiting new cities. And uh, one of the things I love is experiencing the different cultures that make up a city with the unique foods and architecture and music and traditions and... Whether I'm traveling by myself or most oftentimes I travel with my wife, Jorley, we we try when we travel to live in that city for however long we're there, we try to live there like the locals do. In other words, I'm not super interested in going to the touristy spots in the city, filled with chain restaurants and malls with food courts and fast fashion. I want to go where the locals go. I want to go to to where they eat and and to do what they do. I want to go where where the locals go. And even if it's just for 24 hours on a layover flight or that sort of thing, I want to immerse myself in their way of of living and experiencing the world from their vantage point. Well, we're in a series right now called God of All Things, where over this past few months, we've been looking at all sorts of different things. And we've been asking the question, we've been saying, what do these things teach us about, uh, first, the world that we live in? But then ultimately, what do they teach us about the God who made them? And we've looked at all sorts of kind of interesting things. We looked at bacon. That was probably one of my favorites. And we looked at salt and dust. And, uh, and then last week, Pastor David shared a message on gardens. And in a lot of ways, today's message is kind of like an episode two or a part two to David's message. It's kind of a sequel of sorts. And I'm going to do my best to pick up where he left off and to build upon the foundation he set as we kind of unpack today's message. And so today we're going to be looking at cities. And maybe when I say that, maybe one of the things you're thinking right off the start is cities. I thought this was a a, a sermon series about things that God has made. God didn't make cities, he made trees and plants and wildlife. If anything, God's creation has been disrupted by these concrete jungles we call cities. And while on the one hand there might be some truth to that, a number of Bible scholars would argue that the building and cultivating of cities wasn't man's idea, wasn't something that humanity came up with and certainly wasn't a result of the fall. But instead, that the building of cities was, was a critical part of God's plan for creation, for, for, for human flourishing from the very beginning of time. More on that later. But, but as we get started, I want to go back to the very beginning of Scripture. So if you have a Bible open, why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. And for context, the setting of these verses takes place kind of midway through or even near the tail end of the creation account. And God has just made light in the sky, the water, dry land, and the sun, moon, and stars, the animals, the fish. And then we pick up in verse 26. So if you have your Bibles open, or even if you don't, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And uh, we're going to pick up and read today. The reason we stand is we believe that these words that we're about to look at today are the most important words that we're going to read or hear said today, and so we stand in honor of that. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Here's what it says. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together and then we'll unpack it. God, we, uh, we pray that this morning as we look at the scriptures, as we seek to, to, to learn more about your character in this world that you've placed us in. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. Would we have ears to hear what it is that you want to say to us this morning, Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Okay, so what does this passage of scripture we just read have to do with cities? Uh, maybe that's something that you're wondering as we get off the start. And, and I promise we'll get to that. But I wanted to start by pointing out two important and, and I think really relevant ideas that we see in this text in Genesis that, that I think are really helpful as we build out this sort of theology of cities. The first thing in that text that I want to point out is, is this, this, this phrase, the image of God. The writer in Genesis repeats this phrase, image of God, over and over again three times in those three short verses. And historians will tell you that in the original language, in, in the Hebrew language, if, if an author wanted the reader to really get a point that they were trying to make, they didn't italicize it or underline it or make it all caps or bold or something like that. They would just repeat it over and over again so you knew that, okay, this is the significant part of the text that we're about to read. And so, so with that in mind, I think it's safe to say that in the creating of humanity, key to their existence and their identity is that they're made in the image of God that they made in his image or or as verse twenty six says, in his likeness. So then I think a valid question is, well what does it mean to be made in God's image and, and likeness? Well, generations of readers have suggested a variety of options for what that all includes, and it's for sure multifaceted. But one thing that's abundantly clear in, in Genesis chapter 1, and, and, and it's summed up right from the beginning of this, this passage, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created. And there's splashes of all sorts of different themes throughout Genesis 1, but one thing that's unmistakable is God's purposeful and energetic desire to create. So to be made in God's image is to reflect the creative character of God. The second thing that I want to point out in this verse that we just read in Genesis chapter 1, I want us to catch this word dominion. It says to let them have dominion. It comes from the Hebrew word radah. The NIV Bible translates that same word that we just read as to rule, using this kind of kingly language. One Hebrew scholar translated those same words like this, to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. And I love that because it's so easy to read that story in Genesis 1 and 2 where God creates man and then he, he puts him in charge of the garden and, and tells him to rule and to care for the earth. It's easy to read that and to simply imagine that God's saying, okay, Adam, I made this beautiful garden and I love it just the way it is. So please don't screw it up. Just water it, weed the garden, water the petunias and don't change anything. But that's not it at all. Adam's assignment is so much more than weeding and lawn maintenance, although I'm sure there was a need for him to do a bit of that from time to time. But it's so much bigger. God was inviting humans to join him in his creative work, to create and shape culture, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. As Tim Keller says, he was was directing them to build a God-honoring civilization, to bring forth the, the riches that God had put into creation by developing science in art, in architecture, to develop human civilization. So all of that's wrapped up in those first few verses in Genesis chapter 1. Image bearers who are commissioned to rule over the earth. And then in the the chapter to follow, in Genesis chapter 2, we see that partnership begin to take shape. as, As God places Adam in the garden called Eden, and he tells him to cultivate it, to take the raw materials of the earth the wood from the trees, the plants, the water, the gold, the onyx that God provided, and to create something with it. In other words, to take the raw materials of the garden and to turn them into a garden-like city. And and the very first culture-shaping assignment that that God gives Adam is to name the animals. I always think this is kind of a funny section of Scripture in the story. Like I wonder if once, once God had delegated this responsibility to Adam to name the animals, if he instantly regretted it. Like as Adam began to think of, of, of names and, and begin to, to, to choose who was going to be called what. This week I looked at the strangest names in the animal kingdom. And uh, here are a few of the ones I found. Have you ever heard of the tasseled wabagong? Or a spider called Sparkle Muffin? <laughs> or a fish that's called the spiny lump sucker? See, see, God was completely capable of naming all the animals and just giving Adam like a dictionary and saying, saying, saying here's all the names so you can keep track of it, but he didn't. He made room for Adam to have his own creativity, allowing him to create and to be the one who speaks something out of nothing. Andy Crouch, who's who's an American journalist and Christian thought leader, he wrote this. He said, to be clear, God has provided the raw materials, the garden, the animals themselves, and Adam's very breath. But now the Creator graciously steps back just enough to allow humankind to begin to discover what it means to be a Creator. Adam, like his master, would be both gardener and poet, both Creator and cultivator. The Creator simply watches and listens, and it is good. So, to recap, God creates humankind in His image as creative beings. He places them on the earth, and He tells them to rule over creation, to make culture. And and God's creation starts as a garden, but his his end goal, and David talked about this last week, his end goal was always to build a garden-like city. And his way of achieving that end was in partnership with his creation, to give humanity creative license to use the natural resources of the earth to make something spectacular. God is inviting humanity to be part of his culture-shaping city-building team, and that includes you. And that includes me. Each of us in this room, God created you on purpose with a purpose. And and he's gifted you with unique talents and interests and ideas. And and he's placed you in the specific country and city and neighborhood that he's placed you in. uh, So that you can participate with him in his cultivating work. He's actually inviting you to participate in building culture and beauty in the city where you live. So if that's true, then, then what you spend your time and energy and resources in is not meaningless. It's actually incredibly important. See, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it gives us so much meaning to our work, so much meaning to what we do 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, or whenever it is that you do what you do as you work. I love Tim Keller's definition of work. He says it's rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and flourish. But sadly... Most humans, or even most Christians, don't see their work that way. Most, most Christians see their work as, as a means of, of getting a paycheck so they can buy a home, put food on the table, give 10% of their income to the church, maybe support a missionary from time to time. And, and although those are all good things, that's such a limited and incomplete view of something that most people are going to spend 90,000 hours of their life doing. To repeat Tim Keller's definition, when we work, we have this opportunity to rearrange the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that, that, it, that, it, that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and to flourish. I've noticed that it seems a lot easier for people to connect church work with these sorts of things, church work, pastoring, leading worship, being, being a missionary overseas, it's much easier to see that as participating in God's work and purposes for creation than it is for someone to see the, the role of a dentist or a barista or a city planner or a cabinet maker somehow joining with God in his renewing work on the earth. And so then we start to build up these kind of sacred, secular divides, preaching and prayer and youth ministry and church planting, That's sacred. While building architecture and fashion and nursing and construction, those are secular. But we don't see any of this distinction in scripture. Jesus spent the majority of his life as a carpenter. Even Paul, the apostle who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, was described as as it relates to work as a tent maker. See, I absolutely believe that God calls pastors and leaders of the church. He calls them to shepherd the flock, to lead the community of faith. But I also believe that that God calls doctors and business leaders and architects to to cultivate the earth, creating great art and creating great music and skyscrapers and medicine. Let me say this, the, the work that I do as a pastor is no more sacred or pleasing to God than that of a first grade educator teaching a group of first graders to read. That's the truth. Now, of course, there's, there's good work and there's bad work. There's work that, that's good for the earth and for humanity and civilization that brings glory to God. And then there's also work that's destructive to the human brain and to the family and to the economy, to the developing world. There's good work and bad, but I guess the point that I'm trying to make this morning is that all good work is God's work that you can absolutely be living into your identity as a follower of Jesus, as an image-bearer of God when you do your work, whatever it is, but when you do it for the good of others and for the glory of God. John Mark Comer, who's an author and a pastor teacher from Portland, Oregon, he wrote this. He said, we're called to make a garden-like world where image-bearers can flourish and thrive, where people can experience and enjoy God's generous love A kingdom where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Where the glass wall between earth and heaven is so thin and clear and translucent that you don't even remember it's there. I love that. So so whether you're building spreadsheets or filing taxes, or you're making an incredible latte or or you're you're taking customer service calls, or maybe you're designing homes, or you're making advances in science or medicine, or maybe you're staying home with your children and, and changing diaper after diaper after diaper, but you're seeking to raise them in the way of Jesus. When you do these things, you're living into your identity as an image bearer of Jesus, as an image bearer of God, and you're fulfilling the cultural mandate that God gave Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. Or as Meredith Klein paraphrased that, to build cities. See, these are all sh- culture-shaping activities. When, when you build or create or when you teach or make art, you're cultivating the earth. You're taking those raw materials that you've been given and you're making something of value. See, if we want to bring this whole thing back to the idea of cities, it's actually in cities where this is most easily seen where the culture-shaping work that God's called us to is is on display. In a lot of ways, cities are kind of like a microcosm of a larger society. They're like this cultural mining or like a developmental center. Or you could think of a city like a really powerful magnifying glass that draws out whatever is in the human heart and puts it on full display. Why? Well, even just by nature of density, so then the diversity that comes from cities, it brings out the, the best of society, but then it also brings out the worst of society. It attracts the the high achiever and the incredibly talented and and the best of the best in every industry because in the city you have the highest chance of achieving your dreams. And so large groups of like-minded people come together and and, and they're given to their fields and they congregate in the city and they push each other and they inspire each other to become the very best at whatever it is that they're doing. Those people were always part of the larger society. They were in the suburbs, the rural areas. But as they congregate together in the city, you begin to see this kind of incubator of cultural development. And so the most beautiful parts of society as well as the the most horrible parts of society are on display in the city. See, if we jump back to Genesis for a moment, it doesn't take long after God gives this, this beautiful vision to humanity, this assignment to build culture and cities It's only 30 verses later that that sin enters the world and it begins to corrupt God's good and perfect design, including his plan for work and the cultivating of human society. Something that was meant to be marked by joy and fulfillment would become hard and burdensome and God's plans for humans to rule and have dominion over the earth would take this very dark turn as sin penetrates the human heart and impacts every sphere of society. You probably know the story from from Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve eat from this tree that God told them to avoid. They they eat from this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, And the reason God told them not to eat from this tree called the knowledge of good and evil isn't because if they ate it, they would suddenly know the difference between good and evil, right from wrong. And for some strange reason, God didn't want them to know the difference. No, eating from the tree was about them defining for themselves what was right and what was wrong, taking ethics into their own hands, defining morality apart from the author of life himself. And humans have been doing that exact same thing ever since. History shows that humans are responsible for some amazing advances in society and culture, things like art and science and education and coffee and handel's Messiah, Takafino, or your favorite restaurant, but they're also responsible for horrible things like slavery in racism in the holocaust in abortion in isis in the war in ukraine in pornography as we try to define what's good and right apart from god our society drifts to some pretty dark places and so while the best parts of culture are highlighted in the city so are the worst parts of society And we know this. All you have to do is walk through a few different neighborhoods in downtown Vancouver. You just have to walk 10 steps outside of Gastown, and you go from penthouses and brunch joints and craft beer on tap to extreme poverty with homes made of six-foot tarps and sidewalks filled with shopping carts that have been turned into portable storage units and people desperately looking for cash so they can just afford to live another day and buy whatever it is that will make their current state of life a little more bearable. Cities didn't invent pain and addiction and mental health challenges and poverty. No, sin corrupted every inch of society, and these things exist in the suburbs too, but cities are are this sort of magnifying glass that exposes the best of society and the worst of society that we've built. Genesis chapter 11 marks the first kind of biblical record of a city. If you've grown up in church, you might know this story as the Tower of Babel. In short, the, the leaders of this city, they, they have this idea to build this hugely tall tower. They say in verse 4, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with the top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. so I think this is worth noting about those who were leading this, this Tower of Babel project. Their objective wasn't just to build a city. There's nothing wrong with that. They wanted to build this tower that would reach to the heavens. See, the separation between heaven and earth had been this good gift from God in creation. The separation made humans dependent on God for their very being and living and breath. They were reliant on him, the author of life, as their source. But in building this super tall tower, they imagined that this would give them the vantage point of God and would enable them to take matters into their own hands and it would give them more power and essentially turn themselves into God. So again, just like we saw in the tree in Eden, humans are are, are making this declaration of independence from God, this defiant human effort to deal with the world on their own. If they could build a, a tower that was high enough, then they wouldn't need God anymore, or so they thought. And sin continues to run rampant in the world. We even see it on every page of Scripture. It brings division and pain and brokenness and corruption But through it all, in the story of scripture, we see that God never gives up on his creation. Though they continue to run astray, he continues to show grace and mercy and to call them back in story after story. And that climaxes in the incarnation of Jesus where, where God himself comes. He becomes one of us. As Eugene Peterson wrote, he puts on flesh in the person of Jesus. He puts on flesh and he moves into the neighborhood. And as he lived becomes a sort of archetype of a new humanity where the first Adam failed the second Adam Jesus was victorious and he taught us what it looks like to be fully human to be fully alive he gave us a glimpse of what the kingdom of God really looks like and then after living this perfect life he died on a cross three days later rose to new life and in so doing he broke the curse of Satan, sin and death once and for all. The kingdom of God was inaugurated in the finished work of Jesus. And yet, we live in the midst of this this now and not yet, these two realities, the age that is and the age to come. Because while the kingdom of God has been inaugurated in the finished work of Jesus, it hasn't yet been fully consummated. And so while the end of the story is written and and our future hope is secure in in the city of God, we still live amidst this broken world that's plagued by sin. And pain and decay. Okay, why do I mention all of this? Why bring up sin in this conversation about work and cities and culture? Because here's where it all starts to come full circle. While the world's fractured and broken by sin, Jesus invites us, his followers, his creation, his new creation, to join him in his putting the world back together project to participate in his redeeming work on the earth as he restores and as he renews all things. And this isn't just some big theological idea that has no application in the real world. You and me, us, we, each person that's here, we're invited by God into his mission to renew the earth, to prepare the world for the rule and reign of King Jesus. See, the vision we get in scripture of the afterlife of heaven, of what's to come into the future, our future hope. And David touched on this last week. It's not a picture of a spiritual universe in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, When I was a kid, I watched a a movie, a series of movies called Left Behind. I don't know if you've seen them before, but they are incredibly scary, especially as a 10-year-old. Essentially, I think I was scared into following Jesus, and maybe that's not all bad. Um, but, but in addition to being scared into following Jesus, I also got this vision of, of, of the end, this vision of eternity as this disembodied place where, where Christians would go to. I had this idea that, that one day Christians would be evacuated from this hellbound place and would be swept away into this new and better kingdom. And, and, and there's lots of mystery about what the future holds. But what the future reality really looks like. But, 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 but what's pretty clear in John's vision of eternity in Revelation 22 and Revelation 20, 21 is that eternity isn't some place in a galaxy far, far away. The biblical vision of eternity is not of Christians being taken away from the earth, but instead about heaven coming here. Eternity takes place here, and it's described as a city, a garden-like city, a new heaven and a new earth that come together as a single whole, where God's presence dwells and where there is perfect shalom, where there's perfect peace. In John's vision in Revelation 21, verse 5, Jesus says these words. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. Just beautiful words from Jesus, and it's only very recently that I caught an important nuance in, in Jesus' words. See, he doesn't say I'm making all new things. He says I'm making all things new. He's restoring and perfecting all things. But he's not starting from scratch. He's not wiping the slate clean and starting again. He's renewing and rebuilding that which has been broken and corrupted by sin, and he's preparing it for his bride, the church. And this renewed city doesn't have any tears, and it doesn't have any mourning. and There's no disease, and there's no abuse, and there's no pain or pain poverty, or death. They've all been done away with, but the things on this earth that are good and right and beautiful, they will last into God's future reality in the age to come. N.T. Wright, who's a British scholar and theologian, he said it like this. He said, what you do in the present by painting and preaching, singing, sewing, praying, Teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly or a little more bearable until the day when we leave it all behind. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. By such labors, you're not oiling the wheel of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that that shortly will be thrown on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up from a building site. You are strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. And and as N.T. Wright noted in this quote, there's so much mystery to it all. But for me, I find this great hope in knowing that God has made me in his image, and that he's called me and invited me to participate in his renewing work, that what I do matters, and that what I do right now has profound meaning as I'm building for God's future kingdom. So when you go to work tomorrow, when you jump on the SkyTrain or you get in your car and, and head to work or maybe even before that, maybe when you, when you make dinner tonight and you sit around the table with your kids or your community group or your community and you, and you, and you have great drinks and great food as, as you love and serve and work and teach and fight for justice and build houses and make art and create spreadsheets and plant flowers and build businesses and treat patients, you are joining King Jesus in his Putting the World Back Together project. And the things you do with him and for him will in some strange and really profound way find themselves in the city of God in the age to come. Amen? Amen. 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 Well, let's pray together, and then Andrew and the team will lead us in worship. God, we are humbled that you would invite us, your creation, that you'd invite us, humanity, to participate in your putting the world back together project that you would include us in this renewing work that you're doing on the earth. And we are the first to admit that there is so much mystery to what you're doing, that there's so much mystery to this, this, this future kingdom that we look towards. But I pray that for each person in this room, that as we put our hand to the work that you've called us to, that we would see it as joining with you in the work that you're doing on the earth, that we would see great meaning in the things that you've called us to that we would partner with you in, in creating and cultivating cities and this earth, as a place that that's heaven meeting earth. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.